0: LMFM Podcasts. Brought to you with Cartman-Cross Credit Union,
2: where a student loan can help you finance your further education. Call to Cartmacross Credit Union on Street or at CU.ie
3: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie tuesday morning the 9th
4: of april good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m this is michael reid on lmfm Five of the most senior figures involved in the FAI will appear before New Yorkshire's committee tomorrow. John Delaney, the former CEO who is in the eye of a storm, will be accompanied by President Donald Conway, Honorary Treasury, Treasurer Eddie Murray, Legal and Corporate Affairs Chair Porik Trainer, and the new interim CEO Ray Walsh. There are many questions about governance in the FAI that committee members will want answered the question of a €100,000 bridging loan is bound to dominate. Why did John Delaney make the loan? Why did he try to stop the Sunday Times reporting the loan? Why did he step down as Chief Executive Officer? Why was Sport Ireland not notified? And what did the FAI know about the loan itself? Well, that story is a story in itself, in that it appears as though the FAI has changed its mind. It was fully aware of the loan, it had originally said that uh, the FAI chief executive uh, had provided uh, the FAI with €100,000 in a uh, bridging loan, but the association uh, say that it was in the best interest of uh, the FAI in 2017 when it experienced a short-term cash flow and that the board of the FAI has been kept fully informed in relation to the matter at all times. That goes back uh, to the 18th of March last night. The FAI, in confirming that it would appear in front of the committee, indeed that John Delaney would uh, be part of the delegation, said that it now appears as though... Uh, that some of uh, the information uh, was inaccurate and uh, that it had not given uh, a full account of itself. Let's talk about uh, some of this with the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport, Fergus O'Dowd, who's come in to us this morning. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, Obviously there'll be a lot of focus on proceedings uh, tomorrow uh, and indeed who is going to attend. We now know that John Delaney will be one of uh, the five people in front of you, but uh, the response was late coming four hours later than you anticipated I it was
3: think. indeed in fact originally uh, before the 100,000 issue arose there were four other people coming uh, but we wrote last week I wrote last week to them and requested Rio Walsh uh, John Delaney Eddie Murray and a party trainer and they're all coming mm. in so they will be accountable before us on the basis of the governance issues that arise we were legally obliged to treat all witnesses fairly as a result of the Supreme Court hearing. And clearly the letter which we sent to them, which I sent them, outlines the areas which we will be questioning them on. Mm. And obviously that is the reply they gave us Big questions now arise for all of us in relation to what they're. Do you know saying.
4: why there was a, a delay in the response, though? I mean, I as don't you say, know, uh, you know
3: what I was informed was that the they actually had sent it a little mm. bit earlier, but it hadn't come through the system. Okay, because there was a lot of speculation well, was yesterday that John Delaney
4: yeah. wasn't uh, going to uh, was appear. Was there, was we there some arm twisting necessary? No,
3: there was never. There was never uh, the only direct communication was our letters to mm. them and their letters to no, us. No, but do
4: you think that there might have been some arm twisting necessary? <clears throat> at, at, on their side.
3: I don't know the answer mm. to that, Michael, but I do know that the the FAI have been uh, very helpful with our committee. Mm. To the Secretary, they've told me that they've been helpful, as helpful as it could be. It was about 3.32, I think, that the email came instead of 12 o'clock. Mm. But that's that's what happened. But it happened. They're coming in, and obviously, clearly, there's a lot of people awaiting with great interest what will what will actually mm. happen.
4: Well, Outline the facts as you understand them at the moment. Well,
3: well the facts are that basically governance issues, uh, strategies and challenges facing Irish soccer, that's our remit. So our questions have to be about those issues. Now, we sent a long letter to them and the key, one of the key issues which everybody is concerned about, the, we're looking for an explanation as to why particular credit facilities afforded to the FOI of Ireland were not disclosed as part of their financial statement for the particular year. And also the fact that they didn't inform Sport Ireland mm. that they had issues with their financial uh, issue with their financial matters. And they're clearly the areas of greatest concern to, to the public.
4: What about the statement issued by the FAI FAA, last night, uh, which said previous statements <coughs> didn't reflect their level of awareness.
3: Yes, they contradicted a statement made, I think, the 18th of March, mm. which said the board were fully aware. So that will be gone into in great detail tomorrow. Mm. Clearly, uh, they're pointing out that everybody, if you read it, you can read it in different ways, that mm. everybody didn't know uh, about what was going on. That clearly seems to be the impression I'm getting, but they're the questions we would be asking them. Mm.
4: Uh, What do you make of that? What do you make of of an association like the FAI, which is receiving so much in-state funding, issuing inaccurate statements? Well, they
3: got 52 million over the last 10 years to get, on average, about 3 million, 2.9 million Mm. otherwise every year. Mm. Clearly, it's a matter of great concern, but the committee, uh, we have to wait to hear what they have to say. We have to get the answers to their questions, Michael. Mm. That's what we'll be doing tomorrow, and clearly, we have to do that in a fair fair way, and uh, obviously, clearly, we'll be asking those very questions that you're asking me.
4: Hmm. Specifically, what do you want to hear from John Delaney?
3: Well, I want to hear the whole story. Um. The, the, The obligation is on them to be accountable to us on the governance issues. But as regards John Delaney, it is not about John Delaney. It's Mm. about due process. It's about the issues in relation to the money. He was the chief executive at that time, and clearly Mm. his answers are hugely important. And his actions need need to be explained. Of course, of Mm. course, Michael. There's, uh, there's, 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 There's no... There's no hiding place Mm. in this committee for anybody in relation to the questions we're going to ask. But the questions must be appropriate, must be fair, and they will be very robust, I've Mm. no doubt.
4: Do you think that uh, the explanation uh, that there was a cash flow problem, uh, that payments were deferred, payments were late coming in, uh, uh, and that sort of thing, is a, a reasonable explanation, given what we know from Sport Ireland's appearance last week. And they said to you, if they'd come to us, uh, we'd have been able to help out or of we course, certainly yeah. would have tried to help out. Well,
3: it, it seems very strange that uh, if an association like the FAI, which has, uh, I think, th- I think for over £40 million is their budget in a year, needed €100,000 in a hurry that they wouldn't go to a bank. And as Sports Ireland said, why didn't they go to them? They might have been able to give them additional funding. So they're, they're, they're hugely mm. important questions. Uh, but we don't know what the answers are, Michael. What other possible explanations are there? Well, that's for them to say. Have you, know, you any idea? Have you, got, have you got your own thoughts on uh, it? Uh, well, I'm, not not an, I'm not necessarily asking you to share them. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think the point is this. As chairman, uh, the Supreme Court mm. uh, hearing states very clearly that the role of the chairman has to be seen to be fair and has to be objective. And obviously, clearly, that's my job. And, and tomorrow I will have to be seen. Uh, to make sure that the questions are put fairly mm. and that they're answered clearly, that's my job. Okay.
4: Were you surprised when John Tracy said last week that he he couldn't express confidence. his confidence?
3: Well, I think I don't think he had any other choice because mm. they didn't. The, the clear matter is that the FAI did not inform Sport Ireland about the hundred thousand, nor did they put it in their audited accounts, nor did they tell them that they had financial issues. So that's at the core of all of this. But it's not for me to judge today, it's for yeah. me to have the questions answered tomorrow, Michael, and that's the difference between uh, you know, what's, going yeah. to, what's happening in our discussion today and what will happen tomorrow. Yeah.
4: Well, i i think it's probably right to say John Tracy didn't say that he has no confidence he said that he couldn't couldn't say express yes. confidence yeah, well yes, i mean it's, yes, it's, yes, a mm. yeah. uh, it's a matter of
3: words yeah it's a matter but i mean the well i think is, I,
4: I think you could interpret it to mean that the jury is out, and I suppose the jury will be sitting tomorrow well I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had you on mm. it. <laughs>
3: I'm sure, <laughs> but, mm. but what I mean is tomorrow. In in all seriousness, yeah. uh, look, w- w- the questions will be answered, and obviously, sure, w- but just that, to give you the timeline, mm-hmm. uh, we're meeting at nine o'clock initially in, in in committee to go through a number of issues. Yep. Ten a.m. we go public, and if if it is needed. We're there up until 6pm tomorrow evening. Everybody will be able to ask their questions. Members will have 10 minutes in Mm. each round. And obviously, clearly, there will be proper and appropriate breaks for the witnesses. Uh, and that's right and proper that they have to be treated fairly, and they, and mm. and I mean that's that's my job. And if I've done that, mm-hmm. if I do that tomorrow, I'll be I'll I, I would be pleased that I've discharged my duty mm-hmm. uh, as a member of the Orakdis to protect obviously the members and the right to ask questions, and also to make sure that witnesses are treated fairly. That is hugely important for for the to do that, mm-hmm. and I think that's uh, you know. But I believe that we we have the capacity to do that. We have the uh, we have the expert James Kavanagh, who is chairman of the corporate governance Ireland is coming into us uh, this afternoon to go through all the corporate governance issues we've had uh, we've had intensive legal debriefing and briefing on everything so the committee is exceptionally well prepared we're very conscious that yesterday there was a supreme court hearing in front of five judges about how another chairperson and another committee uh, behaved in the Oireachtas and the legal challenges to that. And one thing we're not going to end up is in the, is in the Supreme Court, as mm. far as I'm concerned, and my members. Mm, mm, mm. So that's why, to be mm. fair, it'll well, be very that's robust. That's the Angela because Kearns case. There's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's no questions uh, as regards mm. to Rawlison. But when, when, when
4: I said the jury is sitting tomorrow, uh, what I meant by that is that I assume the hope is that by the end of tomorrow's <laughs> session... Yes everybody will be able to express full confidence in John Delaney and the entire board of the FAI?
3: Well, I think that's the key question. That is absolutely the key question. And I think that unless and until Sports Ireland can express that confidence, uh, I don't think we can because they are the people yeah. who, regu- who regulate well they're not official regulators they yeah. they, they do the governance on, on the funding and just on that point we Sports Ireland we've arranged that they're coming into us next Tuesday so it's not ending tomorrow yeah. Sports Ireland coming in next Tuesday and also we've invited Minister Shane Ross yeah. to come in as well because we realise that there, there will be ongoing issues apart from tomorrow.
4: Yeah well to it's, it's quite possible, if not probable, that you won't get the answers you're hoping for tomorrow, isn't it? Uh, well, I like,
3: believe we will get them. I, I believe I believe, I believe it, Like, like the list of questions that can be mm-hmm. asked are very comprehensive and they're aware of that. They've replied mm-hmm. to some of them, not to all of them. But they,
4: they yeah. may tell you that they're not able to respond to well, other well, questions. Well, let's see what happens. Because yeah. there's two reviews underway. Uh, a yeah, review by Michael, Grant yeah. Thornton sure, a, and a review by Mazars. And yes. the response could be Repeated over and again tomorrow that we cannot answer that question until one or other or both of the reviews are complete. Well,
3: what we're looking for, and it's here in black and white, an explanation as to why credit facilities afforded to the FOI were not disclosed as part of this financial statement. So th- th- that's a question that they have so to So you don't answer.
4: believe... That it's necessary to complete these reports to answer the questions that you're Absol- asking.
3: Well, I mean, uh, again, I don't want to prejudge anybody tomorrow, but that my view is that we should have the answer to those questions tomorrow. That's what this hearing is about. And I believe that when this is all over and done with, the FAI can move forward and all of those, as we said last week, all of those thousands Mm. of young people and their parents can have full confidence in the organisation.
4: That sounds Um, as as though the reports, uh, because I'm sure they're spending a lot of money uh, with Grant Thornton and Mazars, it it sounds uh, as though uh, they're not particularly necessary that these questions can be answered
3: well they take well, i mean by look,
4: the people who were involved in the proceedings you
3: know, well I, I don't want to prejudice what will mm. happen tomorrow but i do think that uh you know that the somebody who would be yeah. in the room it was received by somebody else who would be in the room and i don't see personally uh, you know why mm. we can't have that explanation in the context of the questions related to questions, the specific uh, yeah, the government's yeah, questions, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and that's the envelope into which those questions will be asked. Mm. It's up to the FA, FAI and the individuals coming in to give their answers. But um, clearly, clearly, I would expect them to be clearly answered tomorrow. Yeah, mm.
4: mm. would you be concerned that these reports will need to be concluded before the FAI? feels free to respond. I mean, well, if they feel some sort of obligation towards the auditors uh, and give them time to do their
3: work, uh, will that be acceptable? Well, that's, that's a matter for the committee. I can't prejudge, prejudge that, but my, my view, I think I've expressed it clearly. And, in fact, in their narrative, uh, the narrative seems to have changed, as you said, mm at the beginning from it being a bridging loan to being other things, Mm. and I think we have to go into that. Mm. We're obliged to go into that. The public want clarity on all those issues, and that's what I've been
4: looking for. Well, 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 that that, that has confused me, because in their statement, they didn't refer to it as a a bridging loan last Uh, night. Uh, No. So so how are they defining the money that went from John Delaney to the FAI?
3: Well, this is a question, Michael. This is a question we'll be asking tomorrow, and uh, obviously I await their answer. Um, mm. and that's that's just the truth of it we, we'll have to wait till then, it's not too it's not too mm. long away, it's just about 24 and a half <laughs> hours <Yeah. Michael. laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so but, uh, but like I mean they're obviously very clear questions, uh, the other point is that we must show respect for the witnesses, everybody mm. is entitled to the good name and it's my duty to ensure that they, obviously that that witnesses are treated fairly and objectively and that questions are asked and there is accountability on governance issues to the Eurachtas, which is our duty to the public to get answers mm. on.
4: And as we say, tomorrow may not be end, the end of the process. It, 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 it won't be. No. It, it may take some time, but come the end of the process, yes, yeah. it will be necessary, whether that's tomorrow or in a month or six months from now, sure. it, it, it will be absolutely necessary for everybody to have full confidence in everybody in the absolutely, APA. there's no doubt mm. about that. I and mean, if uh, not, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I think sports would have an impact are, well, oh, okay. on their funding.
3: Well, th- well, that's the other issue. Sports Ireland said last week that they would be very reluctant indeed uh, to cut back on their funding. Half of the funding for the year has already been given. The normal process then that during the year they get 25% more, and then after they send their budgets in towards the end of the year, to get the other 25%. Um. So, like, the, the question is if you cut their funding, you cut sport for young people. Mm. Uh, Nobody wants that to happen. I don't want it to happen. Uh, I don't believe the FAI want it Mm. to happen. And the only way to deal with that is to ensure that Sports Ireland have full confidence in Mm. them. And if they have, well then then obviously the committee will have.
4: Okay, and just what about this other issue, um, the The fact that John Delaney stepped down as chief executive and uh, assumed this new role of executive vice president, Uh, that followed a report that was commissioned by the FAI. But Sport Ireland told you they were not uh, aware that that report was commissioned and they only found out after the event.
3: That's right. We got a copy of it yesterday, but we don't know the date it was commissioned. We don't know what it cost. We don't know when it was delivered to the board. So there are a lot of questions about that report as well. Uh, which we will have tomorrow so it's going to be a long day and hopefully and why
4: Sport it, Ireland wasn't notified
3: of, co- of course oh yes of course and I mean why, Sports Ireland were and why in the, the dark. structural
4: change was made before uh, it, was, it
3: was announced before it was announced before there was any communication to Sports Ireland and clearly they're, they're huge questions Michael mm. uh, and and uh, you know, I keep telling you we're going to get to answer tomorrow. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully yeah, we yeah. will. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. we'll be very conscious mm-hmm. of 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 uh, the public out there mm-hmm. who have a huge, huge interest in it. There's uh, a huge interest in this. Mm. And I think it's important that that we, as members of the uh, work as a team uh, and and show you know democracy at work and transparency and accountability from our witnesses and and also uh, due respect to those witnesses. Uh, because of previous uh, committees which ended up in the supreme court so mm. so it's it's a, it's a, it's not a tight line or a fine line to walk mm-hmm. but i think it's hugely important that that when this is over, that people will have increased respect for the capacity of the Oireachtas to interrogate witnesses, and I say that in the broadest sense, mm-hmm. on, a very, on a subject of great public importance.
4: Okay, well this is undoubtedly of great public importance, given the level of interest that there is in it, uh, but uh, we'll await the questions being put tomorrow, and indeed I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in what is said by way of people answering those questions at uh, the Oireachtas Committee tomorrow. Thank you for coming Thank this morning. That's Fergus O'Dowd, who's a Fine TD in Louth. He's also the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport. Michael,
2: Michael Reid on, on LMFM.
4: FM. Now, the Restaurants Association of Ireland has been holding its annual conference in Ireland and delegates have heard that an increase in VAT, a shortage of skilled chefs and the rising costs of doing business are making it hard for many restaurants to keep their doors open. Adrian Cummins, Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association, is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us as always, Adrian. Uh, You're forecasting that the year ahead is going to be challenging, as challenging if not more challenging than the year gone. Yes,
5: um, good morning, Michael. Um, the our annual conference was held yesterday and we had a very in-depth discussion with regard to uh, the issues affecting our industry. Uh, the vast majority of delegates that attended highlighted the issues around the rising cost of doing business uh, in Ireland, specifically in our sector, the restaurant industry. Um, the VAT increase of 50% increase in the VAT rate on the 1st of January is not helping our sector because um, many, many businesses aren't able to... Uh, Pass it on. They have to absorb it within their own, uh, with their own business. And uh, we're we're seeing that uh, one restaurant a week is closing. because of the increase increased the VAT rate already.
4: Okay, uh, do as many open.
5: Um, obviously, there is openings in our industry, uh, but we've seen that the vast majority of closures is in rural rural Ireland, and uh, this is a bit, uh, an area of concern for us with our membership has asked us to highlight this as a matter of concern uh, and also the area of the shortage of skilled labour which we've uh, spoken about on the show many of the time. Uh, we've put forward proposals to the government to try and help our industry around the area of work permits and speeding up the processing time for work permits for our industry also. It takes far too long to get a work permit uh, for somebody that wants to come into work uh, as a chef into Ireland, and uh, that that needs to be alleviated, uh, with it was a matter matter of urgency.
4: Uh, and why is it so difficult to get staff from, let's say, the not just Ireland but the twenty eight European countries?
5: Well, uh, chef- chefing is a very skilled uh, profession. Uh, it takes a minimum of four years to train as a chef, and because of the growth of tourism, not just in Ireland but right across Europe. Um, there is a huge increase in the area of hospitality and tourism and obviously to have a, have a restaurant, uh, you need to have a chef to oper- operate it. And uh, we've spoken to our European colleagues in France, Germany, right across Europe. Uh, they, all, they also have a shortage of skilled labor where we're now competing for uh, international labor coming into, into Europe, specifically around chefing. So, if you're a chef and you're you're outside the European Union, you want to come to Europe, uh, your your work permit will take about six weeks in uh, Germany or France, but it takes about eighteen weeks in Ireland. So, um, we're at a disadvantage straight away because the uh, employee would like to come to to Ireland, they're not going to they're going to give up, they're not going to bother coming to a country that's going to take about eighteen weeks to process their application.
4: Four or five months, uh, uh, in other words, which uh, undoubtedly is a, a long time. But uh, the point is uh, that no matter where you're from in the world, you can come and live and work in Ireland if you're a qualified chef, I take it.
5: That's correct. And uh, it's not that we have uh, uh, hundreds of uh, work permits. We actually, uh, for last year, we only issued 260 work permits for chefs that wants to come to Ireland. Um, and that, for me, is only one-third of the quota that has been allocated to our sector in April of last year. So, mm. you know, we've a long way to go. Um, everybody is crying out for staff. Um, we're, and there is other issues that have been raised at our conference. One issue is around the area of provision of accommodation for for staffing. So everybody knows that there is a, a crisis in, a, in accommodation. Mm. Uh, rents are skyrocketing. So we are saying we said we have put the, put forward a proposal that for if you are a business and you'd like to uh, renovate uh, or have a staff house for 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 staff and provide accommodation to them as part of their package, well then maybe there might be an opportunity to look for some sort of tax relief on a short-term basis in how you rent pressure zones that might help uh, alleviate or give some sort of solution to the. Uh, rental crisis in this country.
4: Can you provide a, a accommodation uh, as uh, part of an overall package uh, if you're recruiting somebody?
5: Some uh, businesses do, but the problem that we're finding is the businesses can't find accommodation at the moment to provide as part of the package, mm. um, and, and this is uh, this is right across, um, specifically uh, in major urban areas like Dublin, Cork, Galway, Limerick, cities. And then that that goes out into the into the countryside in tourist hotspots during the during the summer, where you may have Airbnb operations, where you use it was a long term rental for employees, but has now turned into a short term rental for Airbnb specifically on tourism. Now we we're trying to give some give an opportunity to the government here. This is a this is where you bring the private sector, uh, or employers in, into the, into the fold provide accommodation for staff or give them some sort of tax relief on it and a short-term basis in a strategic uh, uh, way about do, doing it where you have it in specifically in high rent pressure zones.
4: Would you be giving a, a, an advantage uh, to migrants in a pressurised housing market?
5: Well, what I would be saying is that this is for all, all staff. Whether are, are all employers that would yeah. like to be it not just for international staff, but for uh, people that just want to want to, w- want accommodation close to where the, their 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 work is. Mm. And um, what we found is that if you are a business in a fair, in, take Dublin for example, in city centre Dublin, a lot of their staff because that the accommodation is so high in Dublin. They're now looking to relocate outside of Dublin, which means that 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 that, that staff that's left has to be mm-hmm. replaced. And people are finding it very difficult to to replace staff. And there's only a finite amount of money within a business to provide uh, a wage rate that keeps you know, is affordable for everybody mm-hmm. to to live in a in, in a in a high rent area, rent zone area. Um, because you if you if you don't if your your cost goes up and your margins uh, reduce Within you are in the in the drop zone of that business closing, and that's where we we're, we're having severe pressure at the moment. Is that our margins have been reduced so considerably over the last um, number of months? Mm. A because of the VAT increase, but B because of a combination of increased in costs doing business between insurance. Um, a labour cost increase and all the rest is part and parcel of it Mm. and we're having a severe difficulty around
4: that It's amazing how the housing crisis feeds into so many problems in this country and I'm sure it's not just restaurants who are finding it difficult in terms of staffing their business because it's so difficult to live near that business for the employees or potential employees but if you were to put some measure into place like this for one particular sector, namely the restaurants, uh, well, then you'd have a, a problem, you? regardless of where the staff come from, because you'd have fewer properties. And the problem with housing is supply and demand. Uh, and if you reduce the supply further by advantaging one sector, uh, well, then it becomes more expensive for everybody else.
5: We're not ad- advocating for for just one sector. We're advocating for all businesses, but we're putting forward that the case around hospitality as an example of how we're we're finding it very difficult. Mm. So we're not trying to say well, that this should I, be...
4: I, I understand where you're coming from, uh, but yeah. what about people in retail or manufacturing? You know, they all have to rent somewhere near where they work as well.
5: Well, that's true, and uh, I'll give you an example, Michael, where you have um, some large hotel developments um, that are now building purpose-built accommodation on-site for their Further, further staff, mm. uh, which, which over the last 20 years, staff staff accommodation on site would have been phased out, but now it's been... Um, I've seen developments to the tune of maybe 2 million on certain big, big properties where they just have to do this, they have to provide it, or else they're not going to have enough staff to operate their business. Mm. And um, this is going to be more frequent over the next number of years for businesses to to, to uh, operate their business in a, in, a, in a productive way.
4: Okay, well, some of the challenges in what will be a very challenging year ahead, undoubtedly, for your members. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Adrian Cummins, Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Michael,
2: Michael Reed on LMFM. On
4: LMFM. We'll be voting in uh, the local elections next month. Uh, we vote in local elections every five years and last time around in 2014 just 31 People out of more than 2,000 candidates came from a migrant background, uh, and there are just three sitting councillors out of almost. 10,000 councillors across the country Uh, they expect a a similar uh, amount of people to put their names forward this year from a a migrant background and we know that three of them have come through an internship scheme Uh, we'll hear more about this from the Immigrant Council of Ireland Brian Killoran is its chief executive good morning to you Brian tell us a little bit about the councillor migrant internship scheme
1: well, basically, the idea is to try and bring people from a migrant background closer to the Irish political system. So, as you rightly said in your introduction, there in our in Leinster House and in Dáil Éireann um, and in local politics, there's a very low, if not tiny, representation of people from a migrant background. So, what this internship scheme did was focus on local politics, focus on local councillors and local elections, and in, in um, in local authority areas whereby somebody from a migrant background who's interested in politics, wants to learn more about what the system looks like, Mm. could intern with them over four months and, you know, shadow them effectively, go to council meetings, go to do the the day-to-day business, the nitty-gritty of local politics and learn all about it. But also so that councillor themselves could learn about, you know, the issues that somebody from a migrant background may face so that it kind of enriches the whole process. And from from the internship scheme, you know, we're very positive kind of feedback from both sides from the councillors themselves and the interns that everybody learned a huge amount about it so really it's about making mm. those kind of local contacts and those local relationships and
4: there, and there were five there. interns were there
1: There were five, we had 14 people interested, 14 people signed up, um, but we were only able to place five. It was a bit of a struggle to get the councillors on board, but thankfully since we launched the report yesterday, we've had lots of councillors coming towards uh, us kind of saying, if you're doing this again, we'd love to get involved. But there's a bit of momentum behind Mm. it, and three of the five, as as you rightly mentioned, um, as you said uh, earlier on, that came through the scheme are now actually running themselves in the mm. local elections coming up. So that's pretty cool, but, um, and that's great to see, and hopefully we'll see some better representation after the local elections.
4: All right, because from the councillor's point of view, uh, you were providing staff uh, effectively, so odd to think uh, that they weren't taking up on that offer.
1: Yeah, well, I guess it, it's it's one of those things where we're starting at a very low base, so we're starting at a kind of a, a level where... So few of our counsellors are people from a migrant background um, that a lot of councillors may not be aware of the issues that migrants face. And, and mm. it kind of takes an organisation like ourselves maybe to bring people together. And that's kind of the role we try and play is say, listen, contact the councillors say We have people that are interested in interning with you. Mm. They want to learn more. Okay. They want to see what the work is. Um, so it's about building those relationships, and I, th- I, I think oh. we, we've had a very good start for this project.
4: Okay, well, of the 949 councillors, uh, five took interns on. Uh, perhaps there will be more next time around. One of them was Anne Campbell, a Sinn Féin councillor in Louth. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about that experience?
1: Well, I think um, she spoke yesterday at the launch, actually, and one of the things she described was that Um, The perspective that Adam, who was with her, brought to the situation uh, was invaluable to her, because it was something, it opened up a whole new world for her in terms of even relationships. You know, she described yesterday um, that she got to attend, Adam is a member of a church, and she got to attend the church and met a whole lot of new friends through this church and going to a church service, which lasted for three hours on a Sunday morning. The African churches tend to go a bit harder in terms of their, you know, the time and duration they spend in the the ceremonies. Um, But also that Adam did great work for for them <clears throat> through a project that she's looking at about you know local facilities. So so that the ability to have somebody there who takes a particular project, ran with it, and now has given them great kind of research and data that they can use in their advocating on policies at a local level was of, of tremendous use to them, you know. And, she, mm-hmm. and Adam remains involved with her now at the moment as well in kind of her campaigning coming up to the next elections as well. So it's kind of about kind of forging relationships and, and actually having something good come out of it. And I think that's overwhelmingly what was found as part of the internship scheme.
4: Okay, and I suppose uh, politics should reflect the world we live in, and if it achieves that, the politicians and the political landscape should reflect the people who live in our world.
1: Absolutely. Well, like, as I say, we've had 12% of the population in Ireland are people who are non-Irish citizens. And if you count those who are naturalised, it's a higher percentage, you know, but mm-hmm. just look at our political structures and look at all our kind of the elements of public life, even the Garda, all those other areas, we kind of have to get to the stage where We have policies and procedures that bring people together and give opportunities to people from a migrant background that reflect the diversity we have present in Ireland. And there's a huge amount to be gained from that. You know, there's there's tremendous enthusiasm and energy. But also I think it's really important for young people from a migrant background growing up so they can see, they can look at the television and see in Leinster House and Mm. see in Shannon. there and that there's somebody that, that, that has come from their background, that that's something they can aspire to, that we're not, you know, preventing this from happening. We're actually facilitating. It will welcome it and encourage it as a country. So I
4: think all these projects Is that what we problems. should be doing? It's being suggested this week uh, that we're overstretched by AIM2 and Pater Tobin telling us yesterday that it's having a, a significant impact on, on housing and other services uh, that government is failing to provide. And because the government is failing to provide that, perhaps we should look at the level of immigration to this country.
1: Well, one of the things that I would say is that we, we do have already quite a restrictive immigration system in ireland you know we're members of the european union we have freedom of movement freedom of movement isn't an absolute right you mm. can move to another country to work you can move to another country to study you can move to another country if you're financially independent which most people aren't um but it isn't an absolute right you know that there's parameters around freedom of movement
4: it's an odd people, it's, a, it's an odd expression you've used there maybe a freudian one are you concerned we're listening to the absolute right
1: I say that again?
4: Are you concerned that we're listening to the absolute right wing of politics when oh, we talk right. about migration?
0: <laughs>
1: I know what you mean, yeah, absolutely. But the thing about, about debates in inverted commas about mm. migration is that they can be incredibly polarising, you know? We just have to look outside our borders to see how debates in inverted commas around immigration have gone. And there's a risk that we end up talking about migrants instead of to them. You know, migrants are a part of the fabric of Ireland, and overwhelmingly you know, I could show you research hand over fist that shows that migration positive benefits to Ireland. We're at about a 5% unemployment rate in Ireland, which is as close as we get to full employment. Mm. And we need migrants. We need them to come here. We need their skills and their energy and their enthusiasm. And and we need that as part of a vibrant, healthy country. And there's 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 a risk that if we talk about debates and inverted commas, we start talking about good migrants and bad migrants. And the reality is much more complicated than that. Migrants are people. You know, they're complicated. They come from all backgrounds. But we don't have a bad migration situation in Ireland. We have a tiny number of asylum seekers mm. compared to the rest of Europe, less than 5,000, you know. That's not an unmanageable number. And we have a vibrant part of our workforce being people from a migrant background. So we need to be very careful when we go into the area mm. talking about debates. What exactly are we debating here? Are we debating whether or not migration is good or bad? Because migration is a reality.
4: Well, and or are, are, reality. are we debating pulling out of uh, some of the international programs uh, that we are signed up to uh, and uh, the international obligations that many of us uh, believe we should fulfill?
1: Well, I think you know that is the the slippery slope we get into when we start talking about you know um, you know whether or not our international obligations are serving us as well. And overwhelmingly, we can see like being part of these treaties and being part of international. You know, projects like the European Union and like Freedom of Movement are for mutual benefit. Ireland has benefited hugely from this and it's about reciprocal kind of behaviour between countries saying no one country should be overburdened. We need to figure this out together as an international community and have migration be planned for and invested in rather than just reacting to it all the time or okay. being surprised by migration happening. So I think the thing is there is a national conversation going on about migration. It's going on in Leinster House, it's going on in local communities. Migrants are part of of Ireland, you know. Mm. Padre Tobin was in Dáil Éireann the last time we had a major piece of immigration legislation go through Dáil Éireann, and that's a robust process, you know. So I think we need to be careful, uh, and we're not saying we shouldn't have debates, but we need to be careful that we don't have divisive debates, and we need to have debates that are in, in, informed by evidence.
4: Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Brian caloran is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland.
2: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good
6: morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Paddy was in touch. He was listening to your interview at the top of the programme with Deputy Fergus O'Dowd concerning that Iraqist. Uh, committee tomorrow meeting of the the Arachnets Committee on Sport isn't it uh-huh. that the FAI are going before and he's saying that uh, answers are needed as to why Mr Delaney gave the loan that there is a need to get to the bottom of the reason for it and he's hoping that that will uh, be done at the Oroctus Committee uh-huh. uh, Sean says would it not have been worse if the FAI had given Delaney a loan rather than the other way round
4: yeah, okay. Mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> David from County Meath says, what I can't understand in this whole FAI loan controversy is how such a cash-strapped organisation could afford to pay such colossal wages to John Delaney. It's reported that he was getting 360000 and also getting his rent paid for a period of time. This is nothing short of disgraceful if that is the case. You must remember, Michael, that some clubs in the League of Ireland couldn't afford to pay their players over the years. So how can this wage be justified? If I was a member or a player I'd be furious, mm, says David. Yeah,
4: well, a lot of people have a, a lot of questions and there's a, a lot of concern, obviously.
6: Tom wonders, will the FAI face penalties because of what went on? Mm. So that's just a couple on that topic.
4: Okay, and I presume he means financial penalties rather than the kind that you hope will win the game. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs>
6: financial. <laughs> okay. Um, very good, Michael. I didn't even cop that. I'll just show mm. you. Too early in the morning for yeah. me. <laughs> uh, Margaret was in touch and she, in relation to your interview regarding uh, the restaurants, and she says that she feels that restaurants are playing the poor mouth again, that they have a reduced VAT rate for years. Mm. Many traders didn't have such a luxury and she says she doesn't feel much sympathy for them or indeed hotels because Hotels at the moment are astronomical. The prices have really risen in Ireland if you want to go away for a break,
4: Mm. says Margaret. Well, it has got more expensive. Uh, Again, there is no doubt about it. As Adrian Cummins of the Restaurants Association was saying to us, uh, accommodation is feeding into the problems and trying to find accommodation because of the cost of accommodation. And of course, uh, it's a crisis uh, that is ongoing and the cost of renting has become astronomical in most parts of the country. How that accommodation is being advertised is sometimes questionable. The questionable advertising is hoped to be addressed in a bill that goes before the Shannot tomorrow. We're joined uh, by Fintan Warfield, Senator Fintan Warfield, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing in the Shannon Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, what, what kind of advertising are you talking about, Senator?
7: Good morning, uh, Michael. Um, well, this is a kind of short, simple and uh, a sensible amendment that would ban the advertising of rooms that uh, don't meet uh, housing regulations or fire safety uh, legislation or overcrowding legislation. Um, rooms and properties that don't meet uh, rental standards should never be on the market. Um, mm-hmm. And Owen Murphy agrees. Over a year ago, he said that he would like to stop these properties from being advertised and then he may legislate to do so. Um, he hasn't brought forward that legislation Legislation, so uh, Sinn Féin have and on uh, Wednesday uh, the Shannon will debate this bill. Mm.
4: Uh, and uh, as an example uh, if your bill uh, was a- adopted it would become illegal to advertise half a bed in a room in other words that you'd be sharing a bed with somebody else that you don't know.
7: Yeah, so Time and again, yeah. So look, it doesn't change regulations or uh, existing legislation mm. in any way. It just uh, bans the advertising of properties that uh, that don't meet those regulations. So time and again, you know, how often do we see this? How often do we need to see it? Mm. Every week, I see ads for properties online that are so obviously in breach mm. of regulations. And mm. yeah, they're they're either a bed in a dorm room shared with several other people, a shared bed with a stranger, um, or a for. or, you know, yeah. uh, fabrication it, it, at the foot of the
4: garden. It, it's crazy stuff, uh, but uh, these standards, in effect, would be advertising standards, would they not?
7: They would, yeah. yeah. Um, so,
4: we, so so, who would be responsible for upholding them, the person who takes out the advert or the person who publishes the advert?
7: The publisher of the advert, mm-hmm. so the, the letting agent. And remember, these uh, you know, a code of conduct exists between estate agents that they would not advertise unfit lettings in the windows or in the papers, and... Um, and if this legislation leads to something similar online, between online letting agents like Daft and, and others, uh, and that that's effective, then, then so be it. Uh, we'll be happy with that. But uh, we would allow people to report a uh, an ad that they thought was unfit for letting to the Property Services Regulatory Authority.
4: Mm. Uh, and should the authority not be policing the adverts? Uh, I mean, would that be a, another way of approaching it?
7: Well, ideally, the... The, the online agents themselves would um would begin to um you know they have a role to play. Mm. They're profiting from the rental sector uh, and they can't just sit idly by. So um, so they have a responsibility to self-regulate,
4: but the rogue landlords are, are flaunting it, if you like. And I suppose what I'm asking is, is if uh, the authorities should be looking in the newspapers or uh, where these uh, apartments yep. are advertised online, uh, and saying, "Well, look, that's obviously illegal. Let's uh, approach uh, and uh, penalise uh, the landlord."
7: Yeah, I mean, um, that's 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 one. Conversation that we could have, and, and obviously this, this legislation will go through ten stages before it becomes mm-hmm. becomes law. Um, I'll be interested to hear what the minister has to say on on Wednesday. But for this, for, for our initial proposal, we have um, we've requested that the the online platforms and the the uh, the advertisers are responsible
4: mm-hmm, and effectively stop advertising something that is illegal in this case accommodation that doesn't yeah. meet the standards alright we leave it there thank you indeed Thanks uh, very much, for joining God. us thank you very much Senator Finton Warfield uh, Sinn Féin's Shannon uh, spokesperson on housing now let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the comments what else have you got for us there Marie yes a
6: couple of comments in relation to your interview with Deputy Padleto Tobin yesterday Thomas from Dundalk phoned in wasn't happy with the interview felt you handled it badly and didn't do the state Now, he didn't elaborate why, it wasn't me that was talking Mm. to him. Anne from Drogheda also contacted us and she's wondering, Michael, what is wrong with having a discussion around the country's immigration policy? I don't think it's racism, do you? Just to look for meaningful and respectful debate. I think you missed the point the Padder was making, Mm. says Anne.
4: Okay, well uh, I think uh, Thomas uh, might be uh, referring to how I responded uh, to what I believed uh, were personal accusations against me uh, and I... Uh, not uh, apologising that for that or my background or, or for uh, taking exception to somebody suggesting that I come from a, a different type of background that feeds into my thinking. And uh, as to political parties in the run-up to an election talking about migration as an issue, well, I think that uh, there's uh, certainly concern for that. Whether it's racist or, or not is another day's work, but I think that there's certainly concern for it.
6: Speaking of elections, Mm -hmm. we had a phone call from Frank who says... He was just wondering what... He said, Michael, you know this now. Mm. He has has confidence in you. He says in relation to election posters, he knows we've been talking about Mm. them. He says that he's just noticed... In parts of me that the posters have started to go up, hmm. and he says that he's noticed one uh, located on the grass verge of a busy junction hmm. that's already blocking the road vision, and he th- he's wondering well, is it not a case a planning permission should be you know sought for something like this that should posters be allowed anywhere really Mm. if they're in dangerous places
4: no uh, I mean I think you can uh, report to the council uh, the people putting up the posters are are supposed to be aware of uh, the guidelines and that they shouldn't be obscuring the uh, road traffic uh, vision and that sort of of, uh, thing Uh, they shouldn't be put in dangerous places uh, but uh, not everybody is uh, aware of the rules and sometimes people are so busy putting them up so quickly that uh, they forget what the rules are.
6: Yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. I suppose contact the council and see what yeah, they have to yeah, say about exactly, it.
4: Yeah.
6: Um, Brendan also texted, in and Brendan says that uh, he feels that it should be mandatory for farmers to clean the roads up after them mm. when they use them. Mm. He's saying, in example, taking machinery from field to field he says that there's parts of lead and the roads are disgusting because of the muck on them. And he's says you don't know what the farmers have been spraying on the fields and this muck could be contaminated and people could be walking or cycling on the muck and he thinks that it's a conversation that needs to be had. Mm,
4: I don't know why
6: you don't know why what? Why, why,
4: why it's a conversation that needs to be because had.
6: something should be done about it.
4: Well, yes, uh, that was the case last year <laughs> and the year before and a decade ago and a couple of decades before ago and we've had that conversation and nothing ever gets done about it. It's one of those things, it's a little bit like parking outside of mass on a Sunday. You can do whatever Mikey, you want. did you
6: never hear that phrase, if at first you don't succeed, mm. try and try again? Was mm. that not said to yeah. you when
4: yeah. you were growing up? I mean, and keep trying. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then you'll be told uh, that it's not all the farmers and most farmers are responsible and uh, they uh, don't drive dirty vehicles and if they do they clean up after them and all that sort of stuff Uh, you get nowhere with it I think I I, I got worn out by that conversation a long time ago but he's right of course the the main point he's making I think is absolutely right anybody who litters our environment whether that's the public road or whatever whether it's muck off the tires on your tractor or whatever it is uh, obviously it's wrong
6: Kay from Navin phoned in she wanted to make the point that she had the occasion to visit the doctor on call last last Saturday night week mm. with a bad allergy and she thinks it's a very sad day in this day and age with all um, the money that's been thrown around as she puts it on other things that you have to go to a prefab where four doctors and a nurse are working. This is in Navin the mm, doctor on mm, call. Mm, she says there were a lot of mums and babies there. You could feel the boards creaking under your feet. It wasn't exactly warm. The professionals there are working are fantastic but the conditions that they have to work work under and the conditions that the patients have to sit in it's just not good enough she okay. says
4: okay maybe so i i i think it's a great service myself but okay oh yeah no mm. she's not mm.
6: complaining about the service thinks mm. the service is absolutely fantastic it's that they have to be in prefabs and feel sorry for the four doctors and the nurse that have to work in those conditions okay
4: All right. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 185715958. Michael Reed on
2: LMFM. LMFM.
4: Now, let's go to Dundalk. That's where Lisa Smith would like to go. Lisa Smith, as you know, a a native of Dundalk, once a member of the Irish Army, worked on uh, the government jet... uh, became Muslim, radicalised and went to Syria and lived in Raqqa for a while. She said to to the Mail on Sunday in that interview that we heard part of yesterday, the only thing I did was come here and if that's my crime, like a lot of other people's for coming here and realising I made a mistake. Uh, She said life was like back home. This is in Raqqa where she lived uh, for some time. Get up in the morning, go shopping, get your stuff, come home cook your dinner, clean your house, Uh, and uh, very like living in Dundalk, uh, which uh, obviously uh, is uh, where she would like to return. Uh, But uh, it's not all the same. Uh, She said that's why we came here, you know, no alcohol, no prostitution, no gays, no anything. And for me, I really liked to live in the Islamic State because I never got to see any of this. Uh, Let's... uh Gage uh, the mood locally with Sinn Féin councillor Rory Murcu and Councillor Keelan, who's a Fianna Fáil councillor. Good morning to both of you, and thanks uh, for joining Good morning, us. Mike. Uh, Good morning. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, everybody in Dundalk, if not everybody in the country, has an opinion on Lisa Smith at this stage. Rory Murcu, what are your thoughts?
8: Well, my thoughts are, um, this is a woman from Dundalk. She obviously made a dreadful mistake in the sense I don't think there's anybody who would stand over her decision to go out and join ISIS. Um, But there is a two-year-old child involved, and the Irish government has said, you know, as an Irish citizen, they are looking to take her home. Now, there are varying views in relation to this. There are people who are completely against it. There are people who would see that it would be... It's a dangerous pace to leave a woman who is an Irish citizen with a young child and to bring her home. I've even seen a number of people in the last while who would have said initially, I can't stand over what she did, um, look at the organisation that she was involved in, but who have now come round to the idea that here you know, there's a two-year-old child involved and really she needs to be taken home. Taking into account that obviously I assume authorities over there will have questioned her, and authorities here would need to question her from a point of view of finding out the journey that she made and any other information that would be relevant to possibly stopping this type of action happen again or any other information that would be pertinent or useful as regards ISIS or similar entities.
4: Mm. Uh, And uh, should she come home after being assessed and live, as anybody else does, a free and normal life, in other words, in this country, or should she be monitored by Gardaí?
8: Well, I'd say that's a question for the Gardaí and whatever, and Army Intelligence and whoever else, and they will make that determination as regards whether she poses a danger or not. And I assume that they will make an assessment and they will carry out what is necessary on that basis.
4: Connor Caelan, what are your thoughts?
8: Well, um, first of all, uh,
9: uh, I'd like to point out that, um, well, obviously there has to be intervention from the government in the sense that uh, uh, citizenship can only be stripped away um, if an individual has uh, a second citizenship so that is that's obviously why the government is going to intervene in this case Um, people obviously as as Rory has referred to have have strong views here Um, but um, there has to be some form of intervention and um, there is also a two year old child um, uh, um, that we have to consider as well Um, and uh, in relation to <clears throat> in relation to your, your previous question mm. um, about um, uh, what should what should happen then um, uh, in the event that uh, uh, Lisa does return um, to Ireland, well, um, well, frankly, um, uh, first of all, she needs to be seriously debriefed um, by both um, Garda and uh, military intelligence. Um, uh, to assess is she um, uh, is she a threat um, uh, to the to the state? Um, like it must be must be remembered that she made a conscious decision um, to go out um, to uh, Syria when um, uh, ISIS was recognised as a terrorist and death cult by all uh, member states of the EU, including Ireland, and um, there was wide press and media coverage of their activities at the time. Yeah. So um, she was, uh, uh, unless you were, um, unless you were living underground, you wouldn't be, have been aware of the activities that were going on there. So and like in relation to the recent article that was featured in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, I, you know, you, you would seriously question um, uh, what is being reported in terms of her views of, um, uh, of her own experience out there in ISIS. It certainly wouldn't have been the, have been the experience of many of the, of the victims of the hmm. ISIS regime.
4: How, how she enjoyed aspects of, of life in Raqqa.
9: That would appear to have been her experience.
4: Uh, and uh, the father of her child is a British jihadist called Sajid Aslam, Uh, and his first wife, uh, Lorna Murr, who's from County Tyrone, was jailed for two and a half years for not telling the British authorities about his plans to join ISIS or to take the children there. Uh, That's not an option. Open to the Irish authorities in terms of dealing with Lisa Smith is that a, a flaw in the Irish law? Do you think? Yeah, because uh, there is a, an EU directive which we didn't sign up to. Well,
9: that, that is, uh, sorry, um, is that is that for? You yeah, go me? ahead, oh, Conor. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, mm. um, that that is that is, that is possibly um, possibly a potential flaw in this uh, in this case as well. I know there's there's a slight disparity as well in the um, in the Begum case. Um, in the uh, as well uh, that arose previously, but of course uh, Begum had uh, Bangladeshi citizenship. So um, uh, it's it's definite sense that um, uh, 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 Lisa Smith only has Irish citizenship in the sense that so uh, so uh, the Irish government have to um, have to act here because we can't make
8: make our status. Um, and uh, no, but uh, the, in um, in fairness, I think Connor has dealt with a lot of it about, it, particularly the question in relation she has Irish citizenship, mm. and we have said the authorities. I imagine the authorities over there, and um, probably authorities from a number of other countries have already questioned her. I would like to think that the Gardaí and military intelligence would would absolutely be briefed or would find out exactly everything they need to know. And on that basis, they will make a determination as regards...
4: But um, in, in many weather, other European weather, countries, weather, she would have broken the law, Rory. In many other European countries, she would ha- have broken the law by travelling to an IS state uh, under a European directive, which Ireland didn't sign up to. Uh, and yes. that's what I'm asking about. Should, should what she has already done have been illegal? It's not illegal. And under Irish law, she has not done anything wrong. But sh- should that be the case or should we have signed up to that directive or should we move to do so now?
8: Well, that's a determination we have to make. I suppose in relation to ISIS, I'm assuming we are seeing the death pangs of the organisation at the minute. But again, I don't think it's okay for anybody to join an organisation such as ISIS. So they are determinations that need to be made at a governmental level. Obviously, you can't introduce anything retrospectively. But in relation to Lisa Smith, we have to look at exactly what she may have done. Mm. She is going to have to come one hundred percent, completely clean in relation to this.
9: No, I, I would I would agree on that. I think I think introducing re- retrospective legislation in uh, would be um, uh, certainly would be I think the wrong thing to do. But I, I think uh, this case, I think there's a lot to be learned from uh, mm. in the in the uh, heaven forbid that there would be any sort of uh, similar um, conflict arising in the Middle East or any any other uh, region of the world. And um, we would certainly, in an attempt to discourage people travelling to it, perhaps the government could look at um, closing any, any lo- loopholes mm. whereby other EU partners were, um, and we then followed suit.
8: I think we would also need to look at exactly how she made her journey and i don't just mean physically i mean where to a degree where she thought it was a, an idea to go and join isis mm. so i think that is information that we need to garner from a point of view of whether there is any uh, uh, for I mean, us to to offer preventions so uh, we can avoid this type of action and when, when she people.
4: says she ran with the crowd i suppose uh, the question is if the crowd are in dundalk yeah,
8: well, I suppose the question is, who is the crowd and what exactly mm, did well, mean yeah, by that? Are,
4: are they living locally or was it a crowd that she came across on the internet?
8: That's it, I have no information in relation to that. I assume at this stage the authorities have some sort of idea, and I imagine after speaking to her they will have a better idea, and then obviously maybe from that we can take action, as I say, to try and avoid mm. or prevent somebody else going down what is an absolutely terrible road.
4: Yeah. Would she there be welcome back in Dundalk? Uh, I mean, she obviously still has uh, family in uh, the town, friends, uh, people who grew up with her, people who knew her, people uh, who'd have worked with her, uh, friends in the mosque, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but generally speaking, do you think that she'd be welcome back in the town, Conor Kealan? Um, I uh, look,
9: um, I, 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 uh, I, I haven't, I haven't met many, um, I haven't met many representations. To be honest, calling for um, calling for swift re- repatriation. Um, to be honest, my ma- uh, my ma- and I have been somewhat perplexed of the, in the attitude of the government in, in their stance in terms of that. It's, it appears as if this has to be done quite fast. Um, and my attitude in the sense of that is that if the repatriation is done in a swift and fast mm. uh, fashion, uh, that is to face justice in the courts. That, that would that would be my view, mm. and and, and I, I might say as well that um, given the actions of ISIS over in um, uh, over in Syria and other parts of the Middle East, um, uh, given the fact that we have people living in this country still in in direct provision, mm. um, uh, uh, perhaps uh, the Finnegan and the Pentagon might look at at their stance and the same, and indeed um, uh, how to square that one. You know, in terms of um, uh, the attitude of the ISIS towards the Yazidi people, for instance, and um, uh, how uh, they're um, they're now considering um, uh, repatriating. Um, uh, but that's our
4: responsibility, I'm, isn't it? I mean, that's what, I'm, I'm, what, I, well, what happens I've, to her. I've, I've already said that. I've no, I know that, that. But what, what yeah, happens? What? what happens to her when she comes back is a different way d- days work. Uh, but as a, a citizen, she is our responsibility. The state's responsibility.
1: Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes.
4: Uh, and uh, what do you think, Rory could, Uh Will she be welcome back in Dundalk?
8: There's different views. I've heard people who are, and obviously anybody who has gone online in relation to any of this will have seen some very negative comments in relation to her. Um, I have heard other people that obviously see this from the point of view of a child and say, we can't exactly leave her out there in danger in Syria. Mm. So um, I believe, even from the point of view of her family and her friends, if Lisa Smith following, as I say, a debriefing and all the rest mm-hmm. of it by the authorities does make her way back to Dundalk. Yeah. She would have a lot of proving to do to her friends, to her family, to anybody else in, and, in whichever community. And to the security forces.
4: And to the security forces. I mean, Everybody. no matter what debriefing there is, I mean, you'd have to assume that there would be 24-hour surveillance on uh, Lisa Smith if she was to return to this country, whether it was to Dundalk or... Uh, the Ring of Kerry or wherever she ends up, uh, but there would Absolutely. be 24-hour tw- tw- surveillance on her. And if it was in dock wouldn't that be really bizarre, given the lack of guardie that we have in the town and that there would be a 24-hour guarded presence in the town, which would amount to what? Maybe three or four officers over the course of a, a week, 24 hours a day, uh, watching what she does and when she goes to the shops and to the creche and so on.
8: Well, yeah. They will. The Garda and military intelligence will have to make their own assessment in relation to what the danger she poses and what mm. they think they need. But I would. But say don't I'd, you think people will uh, resent no, that? You'll have no argument with me as regards the fact that we have insufficient number of Garda to mm. deal with the crime and whatever else we're dealing with at the minute, whether that's uh, drug, organised mm. crime, violence in Dundalk and Drogheda.
4: But you, yeah, you could understand people resenting that, that use of Garda resource, couldn't you?
8: Oh, well, people will resent that. They will also resent at times the fact that they believe that the guards don't have a sufficient amount of resources to give them the service that they require or they mm. think they, they need at that particular time.
4: Mm. Well, I suppose that's the point, is it not? Conor Keelan, uh, how do you think people would feel if, as Rory Mur- or Moorco Mur- says, uh, there's not a, a, enough guardie to protect the people of uh, the town and suddenly more guardie are brought in? To oversee the activities of somebody who has become an ISIS bride.
9: Well, well, the issue of the issue of lack like, of resource has been highlighted at joint police meetings for some time now, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and we are we are obviously hoping that and campaigning that we get more in the region. Um, now, uh, if uh, uh, if if and when Lisa returns, um, the um, and through debriefing etc. It, it is. It, it is. It is. It would be probable. I, I'm obviously I'm not in the Guardian myself, but I would assume if she were living here, there would have to be some form of um, of a Garda um, a Garda um, a surveillance given her uh, former activities and location. In my view. Uh, and yeah, and uh, well, I mean, I you know, that that would, that would that would be a call yeah. uh, you know given right. our i
4: think our people would demand it yeah they might not like it but they they would demand uh, it i think like it would she
9: she, is, she has served she has served on the government jet, mm. for 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 instance she has been uh, she has been um uh she's a former serving member of the defense mm. forces herself mm. she is she has access to uh, to potential um, uh, she's there's there's p- potential intimate um, Security knowledge that she has gained access to in her own capacity. So, as I said, she she needs to be uh, fully military debriefed uh, uh, by both uh, Guard and military intelligence when she. points she does return in fact okay. it is in
4: many cases Alright listen we leave it there for the moment thank you both very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning Connor Keelan Fianna Fáil councillor in Louth and Sinn Féin's Rory O'Murku now if you're in County Meath more specifically in the Woodlands state in Oath, we've been asked to advise you that there will be disruption to your water supply up until about 4 o'clock this afternoon is due to a burst water main
2: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM We're all familiar with how the hole in the wall has been replaced with nothing more than a hole in the wall and the machine taken away on 12 occasions in recent times by gangs using diggers. But who are these gangs? Well, an exclusive story on the front page of the Irish Daily Mirror reveals the raiders behind these ATM robberies. Pat Flanagan has the story. Pat is a senior Senior reporter with uh, the Irish Daily Mirror and a columnist with uh, the paper. Good morning to you, Pat, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Tell us uh, about your report today.
10: Yeah, we have uh, had of good information that there is uh, paramilitary involvement, um, dissident republican groups. We have it from a a former provisional IRA man. He's been involved in the the, uh, republican movement since the late 60s, actually. but he's uh, he's he's come away from all that now. But he's good information, and he he is you know not maybe not all of the, of the raids, but certainly some of them have a paramilitary involvement. Uh, you can see this by the level of precision. I mean, the, 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 especially the one in Casablanca last, uh, last Wednesday, last early hours of Wednesday morning. I mean, it was like a military operation. I mean, they took over the centre, literally took over the centre of the what was a busy market town in the daytime. And block off streets. I mean, the level of sophistication is actually comparable with some of the operations the provos would would mount in the, you know, in the in the seventies and eighties.
4: Mm. Uh, and indeed, uh, the organised gangs have been reaping the rewards. You're reporting on the amounts of money that uh, can uh, be garnered from uh, these type of raids.
10: Yeah, I believe the one last last week in Casablanca was about seventy grand uh, involved in that one, and I think overall now there's been about eleven or twelve mm. now in the last year or so, and uh, I think it's about they've accumulated about seven hundred thousand euro That's in a total.
4: Incredible amount of money, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, what, I what are they going they, to do with it?
10: Yeah, uh, there's speculation that uh, that they're they're um, sort of. Uh, Accumulating a war chest. I mean, I mean, it's it's not. I mean, as, as we, we've seen in the past, I mean, it takes a lot of money to mount campaigns to buy guns overseas. So uh, that is the, that's the 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 information we have is that um, they're compiling a war chest to uh, to to launch a campaign in the in the aftermath of Brexit. I mean, there's a good chance now. I mean, the government don't want to talk about this, but uh, there is a good chance that these have to be some sort of border posts uh, along the frontier. After Brexit, especially with the I mean, the, um, the movement of animals and that across the border, it just cannot continue if there's a hard Brexit. So these will be an obvious target. These guys see themselves sort of the successors to, you know, everybody talks about Sean South from Gary Owen. I mean, this this both the campaigns have been going on since the since the 1950s. These guys. Believe wrongly so that the successes have shown certain that they they are going to uh, mount another border campaign and that, yeah, that's that's their intention in the future. Uh,
4: and you don't believe that they're dirty ordinary criminals.
10: Oh, there is some, there is some involved. There's no doubt about that. I mm. mean, I, I know of two individuals that have been named. But in the last 24 hours, the government now and, and the the Department of Justice now here are saying that fo- following lines now that, that there is paramilitary involvement. The absence of a government in the north is not happening either. I mean, there's no Justice Department in the north, no Minister for Justice. has been run from more or less from Westminster. So there's I mean, the, the people in Westminster, you know, Tories saying that there's no such thing as an Irish border and they're comparing it to, to the border between the, the North and South mm. to London boroughs. That doesn't help. I mean, there's, there's no level of organisation. But, but the PSNI now and the Gardaí are now uh, believe there is some sort of military, uh, paramilitary involvement.
4: Yeah, and a a lot of planning going into this. Uh, It was remarkable to watch the CCTV coverage yesterday of uh, the attack in Derry. And uh, the hole was cut out of the roof of the van. I I, I didn't think the van would be able to take the weight of the ATM machine, uh, but it was uh, designed to spec, wasn't it?
10: Absolutely. It's It's very sophisticated. Sophisticated level of planning. I mean, as I said, it does remind you of the of the way the provos used to use vans for rocket attacks. On that, it's the same thing. This this was highly planned. I mean, in two or three minutes of, of mayhem, they they can get a seventy grand. It used to be the case a lot of the the, the finance mm. for, for paramilitary organisations came from bank raids, mm. but. it they sort of moved away from that now, because, probably because of the, the sort of presence of armed guardia around the place. They can be on the scene in a few minutes and the, the danger of getting shot. But mm. this is relatively safe. Uh, they, they put a lot of planning into it. They strike in the middle of the night and they're gone within two or three minutes before mm. anyone can react.
4: Uh, and post offices, of course, were regular targets. Uh, but this is uh, the new post office uh, bank-type raid uh, that we remember from years gone by for similar purposes uh, to fund an armed campaign.
10: Yeah, well, that seems to be the way, though. There's always been a, a sort of a blurred line between uh, criminality and paramilitarism, uh, especially with some of the fringe organizations, the LA, who depended on um, sort of extortion rackets and that mm. to, to, to finance the campaigns. But this seems to be an easy way to, uh, to sort of to fill the coffers for, for military campaigns.
4: Uh, The organisation and the might, if you like, that goes into the planning of this is impressive in one sense to some degree. Uh, But what else is attached? Because there's been... A lot of bewilderment at how people don't hear these machines coming down the streets late at night. Is there pressure being applied to communities, do you think?
10: Well, I think a lot of people are, I mean, there are people living in fear. I mean, there's been no confrontation between sort of the forces of law and all or, and and these units. We're not we're not sure if they're armed. But, I mean, an ordinary citizen wouldn't take a chance of confronting these people. Maybe, they get, But then again, again, you're a layer to police. The the Mm. they're probably well gone. And then you know, there's a lot of talk in recent weeks and months about you know guard presence, especially in rural areas. And this is probably this is coming, chickens coming home to roost. You know, Mm, uh, I mean guardy can't be everywhere, especially with the closure of local stations. There's less information available, and and but you can't expect ordinary people to get up in the middle of the night and you know confront raiders. You know, Mm. probably armed.
4: Yeah, or you uh, can't be too surprised anymore, at least, if uh, Gardaí, uh try to tackle the criminals but they find that the street is blocked off by trucks, as uh, the case may be. It seems far too easy, uh, as difficult and as complicated as it might be for somebody like me or you, to carry out a, a raid like this. Uh, but on 12 occasions they've done it uh, without uh, too much sweat. It seems too easy for them to be able to carry out these raids. Uh, and you'd have to expect that there'll be more of them.
10: There is Probably will be more. I mean, nearly it's on, on probably uh, more than a weekly basis now. But um, uh, you notice there's no arrests so far, and mm. there seems to, be, seems to be no leads, which which would also you know tend to uh, tend to point para uh, presence there. But um, as you said, I mean, think about it. You've, you've, you've got three or four minutes to 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 uh, smash smash uh, an ATM from a wall. Mm. You have to have a very highly trained driver. You have to have mechanics to get to, first of all, to get the machine there. I mean, you have low loaders, you have, you know, jeeps. I mean, Mm. it's it's serious. As I said, it's nearly a military operation. Mm.
4: Uh, And you have to have an ATM. And therein lies one of uh, the concerns, because if they keep this up, uh, well, they can't keep replacing the machines and uh, keep uh, replacing the money that was in them. uh, And uh, it may be a, a situation where there won't be ATMs
10: this is the problem especially in rural areas i mean people are totally dependent i mean branch uh, bank branches have been shut, post offices are gone so the only access to cash uh, for a lot of people in the in in rural areas is the uh, atm usually in the filling station but i mean what what kind of business person would what business person would want to to put themselves at that level of risk i mean Mm. the the building's just demolished and you know insurance premium premium through the roof i mean it if you get to the situation where people don't want a ATM in the premises,
4: mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there's uh, no doubt uh, in uh, your mind or in the mind of uh, your source, uh, the former member of uh, the provisions that you were talking to, that this is a dissident operation uh, and it's uh, for uh, arming the dissidents uh, uh, in the aftermath of Brexit.
10: Absolutely, uh, I can't, you know, I couldn't, you know, say every one of them. Mm. Uh, raids a, uh, had a paramilitary involvement, but certainly some of them have. And they're, they're probably cooperating with criminals as well. I mean, as I said, the line is very blurred between criminality and some of these paramilitaries.
4: Okay, Pat, we we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Pat Flanagan, senior reporter and columnist with uh, the Irish Daily Mirror.
2: Michael, Michael Reed
4: on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda you're investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Tara McManus of Drahata Station joins us for the report this week. As I say, there's a number of incidents to report on, but there's a common theme this week. And if there's a message from the Garda Crime Desk this week, perhaps it's to think about home security. We've got a lot of burglaries uh, to report on. The first of these in Kells.
11: Morning, Michael. Yeah, the first one we're going to talk about is one that happened in a place called Tubberalton, um outside Kells. And this one happened last Tuesday afternoon at uh, the 2nd of April at about half two in the afternoon. And this one is quite sinister in that two males enter that house uh, pretending to be plainclothes detectives. And they stated that they were checking the area for counterfeit notes. Now, they managed to get into the house and, um, I suppose, trick the occupant, who was an elderly man, uh, where they went to the bedroom and managed to steal um, a large number, or sorry, large handful of cash. So, I suppose, just... To, to make people aware if, if guards do call to your house and they're they're plainclothes guards you can ask to see their ID and they are obliged mm. to carry their guard ID with them and are more than happy to show you that ID And um, but you know not to allow these people into your house until you're 100% sure they are who they say they are.
4: And it is a, a criminal offence in itself to impersonate absolutely, a member of yes, a Shea Cone isn't it? So I mean there's a, a number of crimes wrapped up in one there but obviously the burglary one that you're hoping to get information on which may lead to solving the other aspects of it. Uh, Another burglary. As we say, there's a lot of burglaries uh, this week. The next one in Navan.
11: Yeah, this one happened at Ross, just outside Navan, And this one happened um, on Tuesday as well, last week at about nine o'clock in the evening. Um, A break-in to a house there. Um, a television, a fairly large flat screen television, taken from that house, and damage done to the rear of of the property. Um, now, nine o'clock at night. At this stage, it's almost nearly bright at nine o'clock. So again, perhaps if people have noticed anything or saw anything there last Tuesday, even the Guardian Avon would like to speak to you.
4: Okay, Dunshockland is uh, the town for the next uh, report of burglaries. Two of them, in fact.
11: Yeah, this is a new estate that's been built and done at the moment, the Willows. And uh, I think these houses are all vacant, but there was a number of houses in the same area all broken into on the one night. Common theme among them all, they all had their gas boiler, the hob and the oven taken. Um, so obviously these would be new appliances that haven't been used yet so perhaps if members of the public are approached or see these things maybe Mm -hmm. up on Dundee or any of these other um, selling websites over the next couple of days and weeks uh, they might just keep in mind that the chances are that they could be actually stolen from this particular property in the Willows in Dunshockland, the Guardian in Dunshockland would like to speak to anybody who saw that happening uh, overnight last Tuesday night into the early hours of Wednesday morning
4: Okay, it is curious and quite specific mm. uh, and uh, a lot of burglaries so far in Meath uh, but this uh, obviously uh, is not unique uh, to Meath and the report uh, this week straddles both counties uh, we're into Louth next and another burglary this one in Dundalk
11: yeah this one happened on the Carrick Cross Road in Dundalk last Thursday now, this one happened at one o'clock in the afternoon uh, where a male was actually observed running from that property in Willow Grove on the Carrickmacross Road um, a quantity of jewellery taken from a house and And um, when the guards arrived in the scene, they saw that the back window had been smashed. So, I mean, you know, these are not particularly skilful criminals. Mm. They're smashing windows and and they're causing significant damage and also creating a bit of noise. So, again, if you hear that sort of stuff in and around your neighbour's garden, you know, don't assume it's okay. Always check. And there's no problem with ringing the guards. If it is a false alarm, that's fine. We're more than happy to attend. But it could be just that one time when it's not a false alarm. And and we'd be delighted to go and, and actually solve some of these crimes.
4: The next burglary is a, a violent incident which occurred in Dulik
11: Yeah, this one happened on Friday the 5th at 11 o'clock in the morning at a property in the Belfry there in Dulik And this one's very, very sinister. A female home alone in that house, while upstairs she heard a noise, came down to be actually confronted by a male dressed in black and wearing a black balaclava. He went on to actually assault that female. Um, and he then left the scene um, without actually taking anything but this is you know th- this is kind of up at a level you know they're actually using assault in this particular case now that particular female is is recovering now from her injuries but this happened in broad daylight in this particular area and the Gardaí between Ashburn and Leytown are investigating this and would be very very keen to speak to anybody who saw anything suspicious who heard anything or was in the area of the Belfry uh, in Dulic last Friday morning
4: OK uh, we go back to Kells for uh, another burglary. This one happened on Sunday.
11: Yeah, this is a pub on Farrell Street in Kells. Um, on the early hours of Sunday morning, um, the pub was entered via a uh, skylight in the female toilets, and the two poker machines at the back of the pub had the cash removed from them. So again, you know, four forty-five in the morning, maybe some nighttime revellers were still on the way home and may have seen or heard something. And the guardian cows would like to speak to you if they did.
4: Okay, and we're going to conclude in our day with uh, a burglary that uh, occurred on Hale Street.
11: Uh, this one happened uh, at a house there in Hale Street overnight. Last night um, a house broken into and the keys and a car taken. It was a Ford Cougar that was taken from that property in the early hours of this morning. Um, again, quite sinister. Homeowner woke up to find a man standing at the bedroom door who demanded the keys to the car. So again, quite quite nasty and sinister in its in its motive. So again, the RD in, are investigating that one and will be keen if anyone noticed that car. It is a LH, Black Ford, Cougar.
4: And as I said at the outset, if there's a message for our listeners, we've heard burglary after burglary mm. here this morning. Uh, it is to think about home security.
11: Yeah, absolutely. You can't underestimate the importance of putting in an intruder alarm and, you know, making sure that your property is well lit up Um you know, all the time and if, if you're not there, if you're going to be there for an ex- or not there for an extended period of time, give somebody keys, ask somebody to drop in and out of the house. But really, you know, the intruder alarm and, and the monitor intruder alarm in particular seems to be the way to go.
4: Garda Tara McManus of Drogheda Garda Station, thank you very much indeed. Before we leave you today, let's uh, go back to some more of the comments that have been coming to us. Uh, you've uh, had some calls in between the last time you were here, Marie.
6: I sure have, Michael. And um, just on election posters, I'm sure Mm. we're going to be talking about them for the next while, but Column contacted us (laughs) to say that. No, we won't. Don't threaten me with that. (laughs) Political parties shouldn't be allowed to put up any posters, as they are a form of littering and the money should be used for more important work. We are living in 2019 in an era of modern technology. Putting up posters hasn't or never will change a person's mind who they are going to vote for. No, it will. It's time. Would it change your mind, Michael? <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. yeah. It's time yeah. for our leading parties to change this ludicrous waste of time. We have changed a lot more of our valued traditions mm. already. We have to have a referendum. Will we have to have a referendum to change mm. this one? column is wondering.
4: Uh, yeah, I don't know, you, you, you might, but I, I don't think uh, it will change uh, and I think it would be a retrograde step if it, it did. I think you'd see far lower turnouts for elections and that sort of thing.
6: Frank phoned in and says that he feels that Uh, those who are running for elections (laughs) should have more cop on than to put a poster up where it's blocking mm. somebody's vision at a junction. Yeah. Now, it has to be said mm. sometimes it's not them that go mm. out. They, mm. they might get somebody
4: to do it for uh, them. Yeah, but yeah, Still and <laughs> all. And I mean that is a point and I think that's the conversation that we need to have. How many posters, where, when uh, and uh, how they're produced what they're manufactured from and uh, what they're put up with and if everything is taken down afterwards. But that's a, another day's work and that has to be the final okay. say on our programme because our time has run out. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye.
3: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM
2: podcasts brought to you with Carriott Credit Union, where a student loan can help you finance your further education. Call to Carriott Credit Union, O'Neill Street, or at